this morning. Pray for Joe. Joe's in Atlanta, or maybe you ought to pray for Atlanta since Joe's down there uh, in uh, God's country. I don't know which. Uh, maybe both. Uh, but uh, thank you so much. Well, this morning we begin our exposition of John's gospel. And so uh, take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to John chapter 1. As we begin this great, probably the most famous of all the books in the Bible, I think if you ask anyone to name one book of the Bible, they might say John. I don't know that for sure. I've never uh, surveyed unbelievers about that. But John uh, will occupy our attention for the next few months, probably a long time, but definitely is worth it. And I want to I want to encourage you, if you're here and you don't know if you're a Christian or maybe you know you're not a Christian and you've not made up your mind about Jesus Christ, you don't know what you think about him, you don't know if he's the Lord or he's something else, I want you to, this is good. You're in a good place. This is for you. It's for all of us as believers, of course, for our growth and our sanctification, but this is for you. As we walk through this, uh, the, one of the most Christological books in the whole Bible, of course, that's what the Gospels are about, I encourage you to listen and pray and ask God to reveal himself to you, to show you who he is, who he is and what he came to do, and to show you how he is enough, that he is the Savior. So let us hear now the word of the Lord. John 1, they'll be looking at verses 1 to 5. Let's stand and honor the reading of God's word, please. Yes, a new look here, sorry. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. And as we said already, the grass withers, the flower fades, but... Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray you'd open our eyes to see great things from your word. And God, indeed, if there be those who do not, they've not settled in their minds and their hearts what they think about Jesus, then Lord, I pray that this would be the day you begin a great work in them, drawing them irresistibly and effectually to yourself, convicting them of sin and, and righteousness and judgment, and the righteousness of your judgment, God. And convincing them, Lord, that Jesus is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father but by Him. And Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, I pray you grow us and deepen our knowledge of you, Lord. We want, we want to know you more. We want more of you, God. More of Jesus. To be made more like you than ever before. So God, work in us that which you alone can do. To cause us, as I prayed earlier, so I pray again, to hate sin and love righteousness, Lord. Sanctify us and make us holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I'm just going to start with the question. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Who is he? Who do you think he is? And I just start right here. You know, I'm a bottom line person. Start here at the brass tacks because it is the single most important question you will ever Consider what think ye of Christ. 
It's unavoidable. We divide time how? By A.D. and B.C., right? By the birth of Jesus Christ. And yes, sir, those historians will say, well, common era before common era. But guess what? What's the pivot point? Birth of Jesus. Before B.C. and B.C.E. It's still the birth of Christ. He is inescapable. So what do you think of Jesus Christ? And you will have to answer. Every person will have to answer sooner or later on that great day. That day of judgment that is coming. For every one of us, you will have to answer, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And what did you do with the Son of God? Or the one who claims to be the Son of God, what do you do with his claims? For Scripture tells us, and we know it's true, that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the question I have for you is, and among a series of questions, of course, Will you gladly bow before him and say he is Lord or will you bow through gritted teeth because you've been made to see that he is Lord and you've been wrong in your assessment of him? Is he God? Is he only a man? Because if he is merely a man in the same way I am merely a man, then we are wasting our time this morning and we are free to ignore him. We really would be better off, as you know I love to say, at the golf course, maybe. Depending on how good your golf game is, we can ignore Jesus. But it's impossible to ignore Jesus, isn't it? You throw the name out and, man, does it ever cause a discussion. It'll just, you want to start a conversation, just mention Jesus. I don't mean it's a swear word, but Jesus. And it'll cause a conversation. Is he God? Rinse, he's insignificant. If he's only a man, then he was, as C.S. Lewis famously put it, a liar or a lunatic and certainly not Lord or something worse. But what if he is who he claimed to be? What if he is the unique God-man, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament? If he is, then he is Lord and Savior and you must worship him. You must come to grips with him. You must. You must faithfully and submit to him fully. As the great reformer John Calvin put it, at his conversion, you must offer your heart to him promptly and sincerely. Now and sincerely. John's gospel. We come to Jesus in John's gospel. And we're going to keep coming to Jesus every Sunday as Christians should. Every single Sunday, that's why we're here to see Jesus, right? John's gospel is very different than the other three gospels. The other three gospels are called the synoptics and call that for a reason. Synoptic means to see together. I mean, Matthew and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptics. And Matthew and Luke begin with accounts of Jesus' death and include lengthy genealogies of, of the Lord. And Mark's gospel opens by introducing us to the forerunner of Jesus. We'll meet him next week, John the Baptist, the, the first Baptist, the founder of our denomination, of course. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> That's supposed to be funny. And you're saying, but it is. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, so we'll think about that next week. Let's worry, about, let's worry about being saved this week before we become Baptists, right? <laughs> so John begins these first 18 verses with this beautiful prologue, which he will unpack the identity of Jesus as the eternal, preexistent, now incarnate Son of God. Of course, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels, and John are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're all God's word. But John's gospel stands apart. 
I love what Luther said. Luther said, should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only one single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John escape him, Christianity would be saved. I love that because John and Romans are probably my two favorite books of the Bible. I remember asking my mother just days before she died and she had, her mind was stolen by dementia. I said, what's your favorite book of the Bible, Mom? And she said, I love the Gospel of John. And indeed she did. And I said, why did you love the Gospel of John? She said, because it was the Gospel of John to which I became a Christian, which God saved a wretch like me. Powerful Gospel. And she was right. And John's Gospel, John gives us the purpose later on in the book. In John 20, 31, we're going to go back and back to this and back to this and back to this. He says, but these things are written, everything is written, the whole Gospel of John are written this is in the penultimate chapter, 21 chapters, but in chapter 20, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what we're after. That you might believe, every one of you, by the time we're done here, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, <clears throat> and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what we're after. That's what Christ Fellowship is about. If we're not about that, when you turn the lights out, and go to the golf course, or go home, or do something else, or sleep in. Lost an hour of sleep today. We could have slept in today, right? Remember, we're here to hear about Jesus, aren't we? So that's a great purpose statement for John. And what a, that's a clear, as a writer, I love that, so clear. In believing in him, you may have life, not in all the other names, or there's no other name given unto heaven by which we must be saved, but life in his name. That's it. We have no Reason to believe it wasn't written by John, so we're going to assume that. We're going to get into all the technical details of that. Don't, that's, I don't think, fruitful for us. It is for somebody, but not today and not now. We don't really know when it was written, but it's traditionally thought to be the last of the Gospels, perhaps written as, written as late as the late 90s, 80s, 90s. I mean, John's highly developed Christology, his doctrine of Christ, if you don't know what that means, that's the doctrine of Christ, the teaching about Christ was probably written in conflict with Gnosticism, which is this teaching that I uh, believe there's a secret knowledge that some people have and others don't, and there's a whole lot to it, but that's just a kind of a summary of it. Gnosticism, which was all, uh, arose in the first century, toward the end of the first century. But here in the first five verses of the prologue, let's jump right into the text. I don't want to get into all the, all the introductory matters. I like introductory sermons, but I didn't have the patience for that. I guess it was being out of pulpit all those weeks, right? I don't want to get right into it. So here in the first five verses of the prologue, which runs through verse 18, we'll spend the first few weeks on that. I don't know how many weeks, so no promises, you know. We're going to walk through this deliberately, but probably slowly, and it's worth it. Just chew on it and revel in it. This prologue is unique to John's gospel. We get our first glimpse of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, and we learn seven important things about him, seven important truths about him in these five verses that I want to unpack today. And here's the first one. It's going to be real straightforward here because this is pretty heavy stuff, but it's heavy, and we need to do the heavy lifting. It's worth it. One, the Son of God has always existed. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. Son of God has always existed. First truth we learn about Him. John draws here, I think this, this should, if you're a Christian, this should ring familiar in your ears. John draws on the very first verse of the Bible and takes us back to the time before anything existed. What's the first verse of the Bible? 
In the beginning, God. And that's just the agenda of the whole Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He takes us back there, right here in John. In the beginning, God. So here he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So before the foundation of the world, the Word existed. Now, you say the Word. Well, note the word, Word, W, is capitalized in our Bibles. So what does he mean by the Word? Why does he just say Jesus? Well, it's a good question, but it's an important question. Because in the Greek, the word is logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. And this is the most important word, I would argue, in the Gospel of John, in, this, in the first chapter, rather, because it sets the stage and the context for everything else John is going to say about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the Word of God, the Logos. And so some background is important here as to why we camp out on this word for a moment. John's Gospel is written to primarily to two audiences, a Jewish audience and a Greek audience. Now, the Jews would hear this, and they would have Genesis 1-1 immediately. In the beginning was the word, oh, they'd say, oh, beginning of the Torah, of the law, of the, the Jewish Bible, the beginning of our Bible as well, of course, Torah, first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, written by Moses. In the beginning, this would come to Jewish ears, they would immediately think of the beginning. In the beginning, God. The Bible is about God, all right? If you don't know that, <laughs> know that. We, that. That's why we're here, to worship God. We're going to see that Jesus was, is God. And so they would, Genesis 1-1 would come to mind. To the Jew, Logos would bring to mind God speaking. Think about the Word. What do we have in the Word? It's God speaking, right? God has spoken in the Word. That's why we preach it every Sunday. The Logos would bring to mind God speaking and the truth that when God speaks, it is done. I mean, I can speak all kinds of words. I can tell my kids to obey and it isn't done. Believe me, if I could, it'd be done, Right? They'd obey instantly. I can't even get my dog to obey, right? Stop that. He doesn't stop that. He gets in the garbage. Keeps on in the garbage. But when God speaks, the Jews said, it is done. And we know that from the creation account, right? Let there be light. And what happened? Was the light disobedient to God? It said, I don't think so. Their chief. No, it said, light. It came into being. And so that's what it meant for Jews. For Greeks... The meaning is found not so much in religion as in philosophy. In the 6th century before Christ, 6th century B.C., there lived in, in Ephesus a philosopher named Heraclitus. He's the man that said, you never step in the same river twice. Well, what do you mean by that? Was he confused? Of course, you step if you step in Notley River, back where I come from, you step in Notley River, right? You know where Notley River is, don't you? There? <laughs> no one's back. No one ain't shaking their hands. That's where Jake fishes. And that's not what he means, is it? What he means is everything changes. You know, everything is always changing. The only thing that's constant in the world is that everything changes, right? I believe there's a country song or two about that. We won't quote those right now. I will, I will resist. I can resist, and I will. But everything is always changing. That's what he said because by the time you put your foot back in the river, well, the river, the water's flowed on down, and, you know, there's been dust, dirt, and dust that's been moved, and you're stepping in a different river. Everything is always changing, he said. But it is ordered change. And a divine reason or word controls it, the Greek said, Heraclitus said. A divine, a divine reason or word is what's behind the change. 
And so this is the logos that John uses in the opening verse. As James Montgomery Boyce wrote, it is almost like John is saying, listen, you Greeks, the very thing that has most occupied your philosophical thought and about which you have all been writing for centuries, the logos of God, this word, this controlling power of the universe and of man's mind, this has come to earth as a man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we have seen him. There's a very real sense in which today, and in the days forward, moving forward through John, we want to see Jesus. We came, the Greeks said, we want to see Jesus. We're going to see Jesus, right? Now, he's not going to appear here magically in front of us like some people I've, I've told, been told. They see it, say, I don't mean that. We're going to see him in our hearts and our minds and see him for who he claims to be. Jesus. We've seen him. So the simplest summary of the meaning of the word, word, logos, is this. It refers to God's self-expression, who he claims to be, in creation, revelation, and salvation. Three shuns for you. How about that? It refers to God's self-expression, him expressing himself, him revealing himself to us in, in creation, revelation, revealing the word to us, the word of God, and salvation through Jesus Christ. So in the beginning, let's explore that just for another moment. Contrary to the Arians and the Jehovah's Witnesses who were the modern day Arians, Arius was a, a fourth century heretic in the church who believed there was a time, argued there was a time when Jesus was not. Jesus was the first and highest of all the created beings, he said. He's just a man, he's created. But John is saying here, oh no, not so fast, Arius. Not so fast, watch our society, those folks that come to your door on Saturday. God the Son, the Word of God spoken of here, has always existed. Always, always, always. There never was a time when he was not. That's the way we should say it. Never. Never, never, never. He had glory with the Father before the world was, he says in his high priestly prayer, which we'll look at a few months from now, John 17. He was with the Father. He has always existed before the world was. Jesus existed before matter was first created and before time began. It's hard for us to get our minds around that, isn't it? Of a time before time began. Even to, even to speak that way strains human language, doesn't it? Of course, we're getting into the Trinity here. We're going to speak a lot more. We're going to learn a lot more about that over time. Not so much today, but in time. So stick with us. As Paul said in Colossians 1.17, the Son of God was from all eternity. So John is showing us here that the Son did not come into existence as a part of creation. He's not created. He's not the first and highest of all created beings. Else he wouldn't be worthy of our worship, would he? I mean, I love you and you're beautiful. And by the way, you sang so well today. Man, I just love hearing us sing. It was loud for a small congregation. But you're not, you're not worthy of worship, are you? No matter how beautiful or righteous or holy, we're not worthy of worship. And one who's a man is not worth our worship. There's no man, only the God-man is worthy of our worship, right? Jesus Christ. So he did not come into existence as part of the creation. As he goes on to say in verse 3, the Son was the pre-existent agent of creation. He is, and I'm getting ahead of myself, he is the creator so that's the first thing to learn about the Son of God, that He is pre-existent. The Son of God has always existed. Number two, second thing we learn. The Son of God is a person distinct from the Father. Okay, here's where our cranium is going to start to hurt a little bit, okay? So you've got to stick with me. Starting to get into the Trinity here. So just 
Stay with me. I'm going to try to be as clear as I can, as simple as I can. Today, we'll, we'll dig a little deeper in, in future days. So we'll look at all three persons of the Godhead. The Son of God is distinct from the Father, not the same as the Father. He, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word, uh, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God. So if he's with God, how can he be the same person, right? Well, he's a distinct person from God. The word was with God. That's very, very important, that little prepositional phrase, if you like grammar, and I do. With God. I'm going to leave it here today, but the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. There is a distinction of the persons here. Christianity's always understood it this way, both Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. We understand the Trinity. The Father and the Son are two persons of the triune God. And the Spirit, of course, proceeds from the Father and the Son. We'll learn about the Spirit later in John's Gospel. The Trinity is at the heart of our salvation. You say, well, that just sounds like something you want to talk about in seminary, but really not here, preacher. Well, no. The Trinity sits at the heart of our salvation. It's, if you lose the Trinity, you lose the Gospel. In fact, I would argue if you lose the Trinity, you lose Orthodox Christianity altogether. You have some other religion. You have another gospel, which Paul said in Galatians, there's not another gospel, right? If you lose the Trinity. And so we've got to put our thinking caps on. It's worth it for our craniums to hurt a little bit, right? To think deeply about God, about God in three persons. We sing it, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We've sung that in family worship at home for years because I want my children to know there's three persons and yet one God. And we learn by singing, right? Think about all those 80s songs. Well, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s songs you've got in your head. If I were to trigger you right now and I'm not going to do that, you'd, you'd say, oh man, I know all the words to that. That's a good way to learn theological truth also, isn't it? So I know my kids won't be able to get that out of their heads. And I couldn't either uh, as I grew up. So the Son of God is a person distinct from the Father. He was with the Father. Thirdly, the Son of God is one with the Father. He's distinct from the Father, and yet He is one with the Father. He says it here. In the beginning it was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's one with the Father. Where God the Father was from all eternity, there also the Word, God the Son, was. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal, yet their Godhead one. Okay, you starting to hurt yet? It's like saying, where did God come from? You know, I loved, remember thinking about that when I was a little boy. And most of you kids, you think about that, right? Where did God come from? You say, he's always been there. Say, Whoa. This is that sublime truth, but it's glorious. I mean, the Trinity is one God. If you don't learn anything else, learn this. The Trinity is one God in three persons. Three distinct persons, persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How could that be? We're going to see and, and as we go through John. We'll dive a lot deeper into that. Each member plays a role in the redemption of sinners. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit played different roles. The Father sent the Son. The Son went to redeem us. And the Holy Spirit does what? Convicts and draws us and applies redemption to us. They each play a distinct role in redemption. Each person of the Godhead, right? There's a lot we can say about that. But it's glorious. Each, play, each member played a role in the creation. It's clear that the Trinity was present at the creation. He speaks in plural pronouns. We. Want to talk about some good pronouns? We love to talk about pronouns now in the culture. There's some good pronouns. We. God's not talking to himself there, is he? And yet he is talking to himself in a sense. 
Three persons, one God. All the way the Athanasian Creed, and I've got this, I put it up, the Athanasian Creed puts it, this is just a, 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 a piece of it. We worship one God in Trinity. And Trinity in unity, okay, unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. So we're not separating the persons or, or, or confusing the persons, rather, or dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Sublime truths. It doesn't get any deeper than that. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, the gospel is so shallow that a child can wade in it and so, so, so deep that uh, the greatest theological minds in the history of the church can never plumb its depths. And you see it right here, don't we? The Son of God is one with the Father. Fourthly, the Son of God is fully God. He is not a mere man like I'm a mere man. Many heresies throughout church history have denied Jesus' divinity. John begins in these first two verses stating that Jesus Christ is God, and then he proves it over the next 21 chapters. That's what we're up to. Really and truly, that's what we're going to be doing over these next few months. Then he gets to the end, he says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing you may have life in his name. I want every person here in the hearing of this to have life in his name. Every one of you. Every one of you. To have life, abundant life, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we're after here. Disciples, right? The Son of God is fully God. He is the Savior. And why is this so important? Well, first, because the Bible clearly teaches the divinity of the Son. And second, because it took the God-man, the unique God-man, to save us. A sinful man could not pay the penalty for the sins of sinful men. That's why God became a man. Cur Deus Homo. You read this in seminary, right? This Anselm. Why God became a man. He had to become a man to save us, to save men, to die in the place of men. It had to be a perfect man who was also fully God. And he became fully man in the incarnation when Jesus was, became a man, but he was always God before the foundation of the world. Jesus was always God before the foundation of the world, but he became a man in Mary's womb, in the, in the birth narrative. That's when he becomes a man, he's still a man who's also fully God. Fully God, fully man. Do we understand that perfectly? Fully, holy? No. Can I explain that to your satisfaction? No, eventually I'll probably try to explain it to you with a lot of analogies and word pictures that all devolve into heresy. <laughs> Some of you seminary students will say, hey, our pastor just spouted heresy up there and you'll talk to me after church and I'll have to convince you I'm not a heretic, right? Hopefully not at this point. So the Son of God, the Son of God is, has always existed. The Son of God is a person distinct from the Father. The Son of God is one with the Father and the Son of God is fully God. Fifthly, you're thinking we're going to be done by 12. Not so fast. The Son of God is the creator of all things. Verse 3. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, there we go. Enlarging a little on verse 1. Verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. You don't need to know Greek to understand that, do you? Really, really, any of the Bible. <laughs> really, unless and students don't say, well, our pastor said, you don't have to learn Greek, Dr. Gentry, or whoever. So, no, 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 I didn't say that. I know Greek, it's wonderful. That's really straightforward. He's the creator. He's the creator. 
the sovereign Lord. He was present at creation and active in creation because he was before creation. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, all things were created through him and for him. So present at creation, active in creation, because he was before creation. And then all creation is made for him. You were made, you were made, I was made for God's glory. The person who's denying him, driving past us, saying those people are fools who are meeting in that building today, wasting their time. They should be at the golf course. God made them for his glory. He made them to worship him. He has claim on their lives like he has a claim on every life here this morning. Absolute claim. He made you. He has a claim on you, right? This is why he has a claim on you. If you bake cookies and you throw your cookies in the trash can and someone says, how dare you throw those cookies in the trash can? What are you going to say to them? I know what you'll say to them. Those are my cookies. I can do with them whatever I want to do with them, right? And God can do with us as you will. He owns us. We are duty-bound to worship and glorify him. And we either will or we will on the last day through gritted teeth, right? That's really the bottom line because he made us. He was there at creation and he made us. and made us for his glory. Fit, that was number five. Number six, sixthly. Seven, six out of seven. This is a record, Pastor Jeff. The Son of God is the source of life and light. Verses 4 and 5. See this here. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What a beautiful... This is so pithy, isn't it? It's so short. This is a journalist's dream right here, right? This is like USA Today. It's very short. But there's so much stuff packed in here, isn't there? I love this. If I'd been an editor, I would have said, man, publish this. This is great. We don't have to change anything here. And I love to change. If you've ever written anything for me, Zach, you've written for me, I love to change your words, don't I? Take him and no, this is better. And then he get mad at me. This is so pithy. I love it. In him was life, and life was light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Yet there's so much in there, isn't there? This is glorious. He speaks about life, life and light. And look at life. In him was life, verse 4. Verse 1, remember John took us back to the first verse of the Bible. Here, let me point out to you, he echoes it again. What did he do with the creation? He said, let there be Light. And here it is again. He's the light. Let there be light. See, the Jewish mind would go right back to that and say, ah, got it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, right? But the life. And he gave life to the animals and the humans and the created order. He created man out of dust, and what did he do into that dust? He breathed life into that dust, right, into the nostrils of the first man. And the first woman, he spoke light into darkness on the first day of creation. He did it, life and light. Life and light. This is our Savior. Isn't he glorious? When this word life, it appears 36 times in the Gospel of John, more than any other book of the New Testament. The second person of the Godhead, the Word is the source of all life in the universe. And yes, biological life. And the sustaining of that life is in Christ. But I think John is particularly referring to spiritual life here, eternal life. I mean, think of John 3.16, what used to be America's most famous verse. I think it's Matthew 5, 7 now, so the judge not. I think it's that now, but it used to be, or 7.7, 7, sorry. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, have everlasting life. 
God loved you so much. He loved sinners so much. He gave his only son, his only begotten son. This word he gave him so that you might not perish but have everlasting life. It's the first verse I learned in my life probably in vacation Bible school when I was like three. First verse my children learned. It used to be at football games behind the end zone. You kicked the extra point. You'd see John 3.16. I miss that man. Now you have woke slogans. Let's put John 3.16 back up there. <laughs> That's the real wokeness right there because God speaks in our hearts and awakens us, right? That's what we need. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the only way to heaven, right? And life is found in him. John 10.28, we're going to get to all these, of course. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Wow. I give them life. Did you hear me, church? Did you hear that, church? I give them life. Beautiful, glorious, eternal life. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. It goes on to say no one will snatch them out of my father's hands. Wow. I mean, we think, tend to think of eternal life in terms of quantity forever, and we should. But we should also think of, life, of the life John speaks of more in terms of quality lived in the here and now. This is not just some ethereal thing we think, oh, well, I got heaven and I got that inheritance. It's out there. But no, it's life now. I don't think we think enough of this, of the life we're called to live now, the joyful life we have now. Because the heavenly life begins not in the future, but at the moment our hearts are regenerated, the moment God says, let there be light into that dark and depraved heart, then we have life. It begins now, right? It's eternal life. And in eternity, of course, it only gets better. I mean, millions and millions of years from now, the life that is of God will still be ours through Jesus Christ. Millions of years. I mean, to receive eternal life is to be rescued from eternal wrath, God's holy judgment forever, not temporarily. And it begins now, right now, today. I mean, think about this in a different way that can bring us infinite joy. I mean, we tend to... We tend to think of, of, of turning to Jesus and getting religion as being where we're kind of mortgaging all the fun out of life, right? Well, that's no fun. Becoming a Christian, you'll just become a Puritan, a fuddy-duddy, right? That takes all the joy out of life. But I would argue that when you come to Jesus, your capacity for joy doesn't diminish it really just then begins and it decreases over time as you become more like him and begin to see the world through his spectacles. Not my lime green reading glasses. New spectacles, right? You get a new way of seeing the world and seeing yourself and seeing God and it is infinitely joyful. I mean, sin deadens us and saps us of life whereas Christ fills us with wonder and joy. I mean, think about how Christians tend to see creation. I remember the first time I went to the Grand Canyon. I'm scared of heights. I walked out there, almost passed out. I really did. They've got a picture of me, communications office at Southern Seminary. My knees are weak, and I'm all, I ran out there. I thought, look at this. And I realized, oh, there's like a mile down. Only God could do that. Only God could dig a hole that deep, right? And it spoke of the majesty of God. Or I was a little boy. I used to watch ants on our farm. I, would, you know, I lived in Blairsville, Georgia, so we didn't have a lot to do. I'd watch ants. I'd go out there, and I'd watch ants. That was kind of like my... Uh, whatever your video game is today, that was my call of duty. You know, I go watch ants. I didn't kill them, I just watched them. Fascinating to me. 
They're fascinating, right? God made them that way to, to carry these big old insects larger than themselves back to the uh, colony, right? And there's long lines, these convoys of ants. I love that. Man, and still, I'll, I'll do that today. Again, I've never really changed a lot. I'm a very boring person, but it's glorious because God made them that way, right? I mean, my border collie, my border collie is really smart. I am convinced he thinks he's walking me every day. I got the only dog in Louisville who takes me for a walk every morning, or Jake for a walk every morning, right? He gets the leash and he leads us. It's like, hey, come on, I'm walking you. I'm walking my owner. But God made him. He's a smart dude for a dog, right? You know, no, he's smart. He does a lot of stupid things. I realize that. But it's, it's fascinating that God made all these critters and all this, this beauty, the Grand Canyon, the mountains where I come from, and the desert, go out to Phoenix every year and teach. And man, that desert has its own beauty. And God's glory is in that. And I think as a Christian, how do you look at that if you're an evolutionist? Well, I'm glad that eventually over billions and billions of, no, billions of years have to get longer. It used to be millions. Now it's like 100 billion, gazillion, jillion years. That desert became that way. Man, that, by the time you do that, what joy is there in that? There's no joy. But you see the purpose of a sovereign creator. You go, man, that's, that's awesome. That border collie, man, he's, he's hurting my son because God made him to hurt. It's really cool. And he does. He hurts him. It's great. He's a little sheep. And he's watching the ants. He herds them to one. It's, it's, it's glorious, isn't it? But we can take joy in that. Compare that with Charles Darwin, the father of evolution. Darwin turned his back on God, committed himself to secular humanism. His biography reveals that in so doing, his biography is fascinating, by the way. In so doing, he lost all of his taste for life. And no wonder. As Darwin grew older, he admitted he could no longer get anything out of music or poetry or art. It's a pity, isn't it? Life lost its flavor. And he lived out his days without wonder or joy. If we don't have Christ, beloved, then joy and happiness are entirely dependent upon our ever-changing circumstances. I just have to change the way things are and get to a better circumstance, then I'll be joyful for a minute. And Heraclitus, he was right, it's always changing, book of Ecclesiastes tells us that. The whole Bible tells us that, right? Heraclitus, thousand country songs, life's changing, right? And so I've got to get my circumstances in line with something I like if I don't have joy in Christ. John says, in him was life. Are you really living? Or is life just drudgery every day for you? If you're outside of Christ, it probably is drudgery. You look at the war uh, in Ukraine, you look at all the suffering around you, you look at the, the pandemic or the endemic or whatever it is we have now and all these things and all the political division in our country and all this stuff, and you say, what does it all mean if you're not a Christian? I don't know if I'd even want to live if I weren't in Christ. I'd have no framework for understanding it. Not at all. For the Christian, joy is the end result of the Holy Spirit's blessing. In Romans 14, 17, Paul wrote, For the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In him was life. and Christ is life. Are you living? Do you feel that your life matters for something important? Or are you just playing out the, the string like a, a baseball team at the end of the season or out of the pennant race? You're just there. You're playing the game every day. Or do you feel like life matters? It all matters. Everything matters. Or you're living for a purpose. Are you? Because if you're not, there's one old rock and roll song that says, you ain't living. I think it's actually a country song. It ain't living. If you ain't loving, if you ain't loving Jesus, <laughs> then you ain't living. Are you? In him was life. 
John's going to go on to say, Jesus puts on the lips of John, of, of John puts on the lips of Jesus, I came that I have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life is in Christ. Whether you're wealthy or you don't have two nickels to rub together, you can be joyful. You can have satisfaction in him. It's all depending on your circumstances, your bank account, your level of education, or your relationship with your husband, your wife, your children, none of those things. So there's life, life and light. What about light? Life was the light of men. What does light do? It does several things. It reveals. You walk into a dark room, flip on the light, what do you see? You see everything in that room, right? In the same way Isaiah 9, 2 tells us that those who dwelt in darkness had seen a great light. He's speaking of Christ there. Christ lit up their darkened lives. Man was living in spiritual darkness and shadow lands, to use C.S. Lewis's metaphor. Underneath man was walking in dark superstition until the truth of the light of Christ broke into history. Jesus, Jesus came to shine light into darkness and show us God. In John 14, 9, he's going to say, whoever's seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. He's seen God. Have you seen God? Have you seen the Father? Have you given your life to him? Have you given your heart to him promptly? Now, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait another day. Don't wait and repent and believe in Christ today. Come to this Savior today. I can't plead with you enough. Come, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Salvation is today. This Savior, he reveals, he uncovers our depravity and he shows the light of life. He lights up our darkened lives. Before Christ came to the world, the world was in darkness. The world did not know God. He came to shine his light before men, the light of truth, the light of redemption. And then men had, as Paul puts it, the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That's who he came, God. This man, one is fully God, came. And the coming of the light of the world also revealed the sinfulness of this dark world because his light is pure. It's not mixed with the darkness of sin, not mixed with the darkness of untruth or error. It is pure light. So over against the darkness of, or the light of Christ, our darkness and our depravity are revealed. You see it. When the Holy Spirit says you can see it. And that's where repentance comes in, right? That's what we must repent of. The light shows us our need for a Savior. Light also conveys and stimulates light. Light gives life. Our hearts were dead and darkened until Jesus spoke and said, live. It's like when Lazarus at the tomb, he said, what? He said, Lazarus, he's dead. He's in there. He stinks. He's rotting. The Bible says that. He says, come out. And he comes out. And that's a picture of what must happen to you. God must speak into your heart and say, live. Let there be light. And then you come out of the tomb, this filthy, stinking, wretched tomb that you've walked through in your sin, facing death and wrath and judgment. He says, come out. Come out. Light warms our hearts. Jesus said, as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness in John 12. Famous evangelist Harry, Harry Ironside lived 1876 to 1951, in the last century. Challenged to a debate by a famous atheist in San Francisco on the topic agnosticism versus Christianity. Agnosticism, those who don't believe there is a God or possibly no God versus Christianity. He said this, he accepted the challenge, he said this to the atheist. I am very much interested in this challenge. Therefore, Mr. Blank has something worth fighting for and worth debating about. He will promise to bring with him to the hall next Sunday two people. One man 
who was for years under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself, but who on some occasion heard the glorification of agnosticism and his denunciations of the Bible and Christianity, and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address was so deeply stirred that he went away from that meeting saying, Henceforth I too am an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing that particular philosophy, agnosticism, he found that a new power had come into his life. The sins he once loved, he now hates, and that righteousness and goodness are now the ideals of his life, all because he became an agnostic. I've never heard that testimony from an agnostic, have you? Ironside went on to say, I will bring with me at least 100 men and women who for years lived in just such sinful degradation as I have tried to depict, but who have been gloriously saved through believing the gospel, which you ridicule. I will have these men and women with me on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ and as, as present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. Only Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, the light of the world, possesses the power to transform a lover of wickedness into a lover of righteousness. That's who you were, and if you're outside of Christ, that's who you are today. You love the darkness if you're outside of Christ so I'm a nice person, Pastor Jeff. You're a lover of darkness. The Bible says this. Scripture tells us this, right? This is the truth of God. So light warms, light guides. God came down in a glory cloud of light, guided Israel through the desert in the Exodus. In Psalm 119, another 105, another verse we memorized. A lot of us were children. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's why we need the word every day, a lamp to our feet to light the way to show us the obstacles in front of us, to show us the wrong turns and all these things, and a light to our path. You need God's word. You need Jesus. You want to understand or love God's word until you have Jesus, the word of God in your heart, changing your heart. John 8, 12, we'll hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he will guide you on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You will never again be alone. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You will fear no evil because he will be with you, his rod and his staff, and he will comfort you. You'll have him because he's unzipped you and climbed inside of you and the person of his Holy Spirit. Now he is transforming you by the changing of your heart and renewing of your mind every single day for those who walk with him. Light guides us. You'll never again be alone. You feel lonely? You want to, you'll never be alone. I've walked through many, many, many dangers and toils and snares in my life the last 54 years as a Christian. Some dark, dark days, and I know you have too. That's just life in a fallen world for every one of us. And there's never once been a sense since I embraced Christ at 10 years old when I was alone. Even I was out sinning, being somewhere I shouldn't be. There's always a sense of the conviction of the Spirit. I never enjoyed. I lived in sin for a pretty good uh, span when I was a teenager and a young man. But I can tell you right now, I never enjoyed it for one single minute. Not for a minute. I was miserable. The Spirit of God made me miserable because He was guiding me. and Bring me back on the path and ultimately brought me back to the path that's led us right here today. Finally, verse 7. Seventh attribute, the Son of God defeats darkness. Verse 5, we wind up here. The light shines in the darkness, <laughs> and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see that? 
brothers and sisters, the light shines in the darkness. And that's wonderful. And the darkness has not overcome it. Praise be to God. Wow. That makes me want to shout, you know, like that song. Right? Glory be to God. The Son of God defeats the darkness. Darkness is, of course, the opposite of light. Light represents the knowledge of God. Darkness represents the spiritual ignorance of our perishing world. If you're outside of Christ, that is you living in spiritual ignorance, chasing after every fancy and every trinket of this world to try to find satisfaction. You only be found, will only be found in Him. Darkness is the realm of the lost and the blind. Darkness is the post of light. John 3, 19, he's going to say, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. If you're outside of Christ and you are honest with me, you'll say, I love my sin. I don't want to repent. If you're honest. You give me these platitudes, I evangelize people, you do personal evangelism a good bit, and it's always, well, I'm a good person, I just, I love good things, and gee, he's a prophet, and a good, all this stuff, don't give me that. You love darkness. And before you came to Christ, you know this, don't you? There was a time when I loved darkness. People love darkness rather than light, and it's no wonder our world's, I'm surprised it's not worse than it is, right? You think, man, things are terrible. (laughs) I'm surprised it's not worse. I mean, Jesus came as the light shining in the darkness, but for that reason, the world hated him, and the world still hates Jesus. Like I said, around the water cooler, just throw out that name and get ready for a fight. You will flat have it. People will say, well, I love Jesus. I respect him as a, a spiritual guru or a prophet even, but that's not the Jesus of sacred scripture because they refuse his claim to be Savior and Lord and resent his holiness that exposes their wickedness. They don't like him. Don't give me that. Yeah, we, we put up a tree at Christmas to commemorate Jesus. Huh? Huh? The Jesus tree? No, they flee his light. They hide in the darkness because they're more comfortable in the darkness. They don't expose their sin. I mean, the plot of John's gospel will show us his struggle between darkness and light. Darkness and light, light and darkness. We'll see this over and over again, this eternal struggle. That's for the soul of every human being. That's what's at stake every Sunday morning when we meet here at Christ Fellowship, whether there's, whether there's 150 people here or 15. It's a battle for your soul and mine. Heaven and hell stand in the balance every Sunday morning when we preach this word. Which is why this is such a serious, serious matter. Now, the world hates Jesus. And it hates his people. The darkness has not overcome it. The King James translation translates it has not comprehended it. Comprehended it. Comprehendeth it not. As in understood it. Has not understood it. I think the best definition for it is to overtake. The darkness has not overtaken the light of Christ. That means, uh, that's what it means. The only other place where it's, the word occurs in John's gospel in the Greek. And that's John 12, 35. It's the same word we use in wrestling, and wrestling, that's the real thing, as opposed to wrestling, which you do in high school and in college. We know wrestling is the real thing. You say a wrestler has taken down his opponent. Well, the darkness is not taken down and never will take down the light. I think a good way to think of it is eclipse, right? It's not, the darkness has not eclipsed the light, just like it's not taken down the light in the sense of the wrestler. It's also not, if you like an astronomical metaphor better, it's not eclipse the light. It won't put out the light. Never, 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 never. 
here on earth, darkness overtakes the light at dusk every day. An hour later tonight than yesterday, right? Praise God. Love those long days. Because I don't like darkness. But what the physical darkness does each evening, the spiritual darkness led by its great head, Satan, has tried to do to Christ for millennia, but without success. No matter how much it may appear, I want you to be encouraged by this, Christian, brother, sister, no matter how much it may appear, the evil is winning in our world. And right now, boy, it looks, <laughs> looks like we're getting schooled, doesn't it? We're getting taken to the hoop. No. No, we're not getting taken down. It may appear that evil is winning, that the church is weak and halting, that war and sexual immorality and injustice and murder and broken homes and broken relationships and death is winning because it dominates the, deadly head, the daily headlines and the talking heads. That's what they talk about. As Christians, we can be of good cheer. Sin and death will not win. Will not win. The victory is secure. They won't win because the light of Jesus Christ has shone into the darkness, has defeated the darkness at Calvary's cross and in the empty tomb. Think about Jesus coming out of the darkness of the tomb into the light because he is the light. Death could not hold him. It had no claim on him. If you're in Christ, it has no claim on you. If you're outside of Christ, only death has claim on you. And you will stand before him and give an account on that day, on that day of judgment about what you think of Christ. What do you think of Jesus? As Luther put it in that great battle hymn of the Reformation, though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim... <laughs> we tremble not for him. Yes, his power and, uh, and craft are great with armed with cruel hate, but one little word, the word of God, will dispel him, will send the darkness away. Are you encouraged by that? I hope you are. Think, well, the White House and the rising gas prices, man, that's discouraging. The darkness will not overcome it. The darkness will not overcome the light. That's the promise of Romans 8.33. I just listened to sermons by um, one of the Ligonier teaching fellows this week on this and just, uh, just glorious, glorious, glorious. Romans 8.33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one, nothing. Verse 35, who shall separate us <clears throat> from the love of Christ? It goes on this beautiful litany of things that were not life nor death and principalities and things uh, in Korea, all the created order. Things on heaven, things on earth. Nothing. Because this is the Savior we have, this Word of God. This Word of God. How then should we live as we close with this? In our day, you're the light of the world. Jesus came and said, as long as I'm here, I'm the light of the world. When I go back to heaven, you're the light of the world. You say, brother, that's a lot of pressure. Well, that's what Scripture says. Matthew 5, 15 and, or 14 and 16 you are the light of the world, let your light so shine before others so they may see your good works, give glory to your Father in heaven. Christian, you're to be light in a dark and lost world, just like John the Baptist, whom Jesus called a burning and shining light. We're going to meet him next week. That first Baptist, a burning, shining light. That's to be you. A burning and shining light for Christ. Do they see Christ in you? Could you, if it were illegal to be a Christian, I ask you this before I ask you again, would you be arrested? Do they see Christ in you? They're certainly not going to find him in the world today, are they? No way. 
Mm -mm, not in television, not on the internet, not in literature, not in colleges. Not in many. Not going to find him, are they? They're going to find him in you. In you. You only see him as they look to Jesus. And as he increasingly becomes your light and as he is reflected in your, from your life to others, you live faithful in faithfulness to his word, they will see Christ in you. And it may be your lost loved one or your neighbor, you're the closest thing to Christ they're ever going to see. Live for him and live for his glory. Let your light shine. Hate sin and hate unrighteousness and, and live for his glory. Are you living with the light of Christ? So what is the foundation for our hope? Well, John 1 through 5 tells us you think this is a firm foundation? I think it is. Can you trust this Savior? Can you trust your eternal destiny to this word? Yes. Because when we entrust ourselves to him, we're entrusting in nothing less than the eternal God. And your salvation is so secure, it's rooted and grounded in eternity past. In one who has no beginning and will have no end. You have nothing to fear if you are truly in Christ. Think of these seven attributes in our passage, and here J.C. Ryle's remark, I love this. Let us mark what kind of being the redeemer of mankind must needs be in order to provide eternal redemption for sinners. This is the Savior we have. And if you don't know him today, and maybe you're ignoring me, you're doing something else, listen to this. If you haven't heard anything else, If you don't know him, today's the day of salvation. Flee to him. Don't leave here today until you know that you know that you know that you've trusted in this Savior. That he who promised holy is holy true. Repent of your sins and, and, and flee to him. He is willing, ready to save you, full of pity, joined with power. We sing it and we believe it, don't we? He's saying, come. So the invitation is come, come. And for Christians, we come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he'll give us rest because we have our rest in him. I can't wait to go through the gospel of John with you. Can you? Isn't this good stuff? Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We confess that we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father but by Him. And God, no doubt there are some here today who reject that or who are just naively walking through life without any joy, trying to treasure up somehow their own righteousness or something else to save them. Oh God, have mercy on them and draw them to Yourself. Oh Lord, convict them of sin and unrighteousness. Convince them that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Convince them that He is the only road to heaven, that He is the eternal Word of God pre-existing for the foundation of the world, the second person of the Godhead. May they find their rest in him eternally. Pray us in the strong name, his strong and mighty name, Jesus Christ, the word, amen.